it is possible that I thought to myself, hey, self, yes, self, you should save your battery and turn it off. And it looks like I did that. So now somebody please help me say thank you to this worship team and to our prayer workers, our altar folks, our frontline people. Golly, I'm so thankful for everybody that helps to make heritage happen. That's where amen goes. All right, how are you guys all doing with losing an hour? You doing all right? Okay. We're going to make it. We're making more, everybody's going to do okay. Um, and then, but, but tonight, it'll be like, hey, look how bright it is. Wow. So you'll, you'll go for a walk in the cold rain and go, I'm so glad. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We are reading this book, living with a view of eternity, knowing that this word promises this, that we will be blessed if we read and hear and heed the words of this book. And let everybody who has an ear to hear listen to what the Spirit is saying now to us through this text. So let's read what the Lord had to say to the church at Pergamum. 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 Chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. And the And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, This is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says. I know where you dwell. You guys are getting all... All right, I'll tell you. I don't have time. But if we want to be faithful to the first readers, then we should keep in mind that the first readers, first audience, this would have been read aloud and read aloud often, probably even memorized. I know that's a little bit hard for us to grasp, but memorized by the reader. So they wouldn't actually be reading it. They would be, it would be almost a theatrical presentation. Yeah. (laughs) This is just cool. Anyway, um, uh, (laughs) and so when and so as the the communicator, the presenter, you know, engages, and you can see what this is going to happen more often. But the characters and the voices and the people, the the hearers, it would be an active hearing room. So there would be you know, shouts of joy and, and, and excitement, and there would be oohs and ahs and, and, and yucks and yikes. So it's okay, as we read, for y'all to be, just keep doing what you do anyway. I know where you dwell, the Lord says. Okay. Where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith even in the day of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. That you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, 
to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. But if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was a a town of 100,000 or 200,000 people. It was big. It was 50 miles north of Smyrna. So we started at Ephesus. We went 35 miles. uh, Well, I say clockwise, but we don't start at noon. If we're going to look at these cities, we're going to start at about 930 Ephesus is about 9.30, then we go up to about 11 or 12 where for Smyrna. Then we go even more north, 50 miles more, to Pergamum. Pergamum was a leading religious center. It had all kinds of temples. It had temples to more than one emperor by name. It had a temple to Zeus, who they called their savior. It had a temple to the Greek god of healing who was typified as a serpent. It had a temple to Dionysius, the god of wine and festivity and carousing. In fact, not surprising, they claimed that they were the capital of Emperor worship. Now, I know we heard that Smyrna thought they were, but apparently it's quite a competition. So they were passionately religious. They were, they were filled with idolatry, and they were fervent about emperor worship. That's what we know about them historically. And to the church there, here's what the Lord says. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. The sword here is a a Thracian sword. It's a double-edged sword. It was so feared at its introduction that the Roman army modified their armor to to, uh, try to defend against it. It was feared in battle, and then it was also used in capital punishment by the Roman governor. So it is symbolic here of divine judgment. But it is not a sword in his hand, but in his mouth. And he says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know, Jesus says, I know where you live. Now, wait a minute. That has some specific meaning in the text that we'll hear and we already did, but I don't want to rush by it in a pastoral concern because if he knows where they live, he knows where you live. He knows where we live. 
He knows our circumstances. He knows our situation. He knows it rains here. <laughs> he knows the emotional and spiritual climate of our lives. And he, this is the, again, we're gonna, we want to try to take this as literally as we can, right? The more literally we interpret the word of God, the more likely we'll be to, we, are, we will be faithful to the will of God. So he knows where we are at heritage. He knows this city. He knows its past. He knows its problems. And he knows its potential. And he knew something rather concerning about the things where they lived. He said, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. How many of your Bibles, okay, how many of your Bibles have maps? You won't, I don't think you'll find, let me see here, where's Satan's throne? Look that up on the map. Uh, whoa, but that's, that, that's a yikes, where Satan's throne is. Jesus just described this city as a place where Satan's throne is. I, I want to suggest that that doesn't necessarily mean that Pergamum is the capital of hell. Nor is it even probable that Pergamum was somehow the epicenter of all things evil. But rather, it is, according to Jesus, a place of territorial infestation and demonic influence. But what was Jesus referring to? What was he talking about? Was he talking about their serious devotion to idols? Was he talking about their exuberant emperor worship? The temple to Zeus himself? Jesus says it is where Satan's throne is, but there is no actual mention of Satan. There were no pitchforks in Pergamum. No pentagrams in Pergamum. Pergamum. So here's the, the weighty woe. He doesn't have to be mentioned to have influence. He does, there doesn't need to be a dark pentagram painted on the billboard of the city entrance for him to have an infestation in a region. Probably it was a combination of all of it. The, 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 the massive devotion to idolatry and emperor worship. Just the, the influence of hell upon that city and probably out from that city. Jesus said that Satan had somehow set up a stronghold there. Now, did you hear that? Jesus said that. Not some YouTuber in his basement. <laughs> so therefore, you and I need to wrestle with this tension and this mystery that Jesus Christ is risen. I think you recall that this sort of emotion invites your enthusiastic response. <laughs> so Jesus Christ is risen. 
Yeah, and it's not for me. I'm not the one who rose. Okay, Jesus Christ is triumphed. Jesus Christ is the name above all names. But he has not yet thrown Satan into the pit. And the message of Revelation is just this. It is not for our goofball speculation about what is coming or who or Putin. It is the message of kingdom and tribulation and perseverance. It is a message. It is a call to cultural dissidents to remain faithful until the king returns. And return he will. So Jesus says, even though they, they, they live where Satan has his throne, he says, yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. They continue to cling to the name of Jesus and, and not denying their faith in Jesus, even in the face of outright persecution. Even death, Antipas. Tradition says that this man was roasted to death in a bronze kettle. But note how Jesus refers to him. My witness, my faithful one. So the church, this is where if you want to puff your chest out a little bit, the church in Pergamum was not intimidated. The church intimidated was not intimidated even in the, the shadow of the throne of Satan himself. Yeah. They're like, like Clint Eastwood. They didn't yield a threat or force from the outside. But he said, I have a few things against you. A few things against the church. Remember, we are not talking about some sort of impersonal deity. It is possible for our Lord Jesus to love us deeply and to be very pleased with aspects of our lives and still have areas where he really wants us to grow and see areas that are serious problems that need correction. And if he has things against Pergamum, what he has said to one is heard by all, and we need to listen. He says, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Idolatry, immorality. So in the same way, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the first thing we need to do is recognize that he is not talking about two different groups, but the same group. He's talking about those who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but he is comparing them directly to the teaching of Balaam. So the problem in Pergamum was compromise. There were some that were holding to this teaching, like Balaam. Balaam in chapter in, in Numbers 25 and Numbers 31. 
Balaam is a prophet for hire. And he is hired by this other king to curse the Israelites. So he is given all kinds of money to try to curse them, and, he, and, he, and every time he attempts to curse them, he cannot. He tries to drive a wedge in between them and the blessing and the favor of God that God has committed to them. So he tries to come from the outside and drive a wedge, and he cannot. So he says, well, let me try it up here. Let me try it over here. Let me try it, you know, I, I, you know let me try it with over there. No, you know, he, he keeps moving hence and yah and a, to a higher place to try to curse the people of God. And it does not work. No matter what he tries, he could not overpower them or remove them from the protection and favor of God. No direct attack from the outside can separate you from the favor of God. What shall we say to these things? Can anything separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus? No! So instead, Balaam advised the Midianites to lead the Israelites astray, to put a stumbling block. We can't overcome them, but let's see if we can make them trip on their own. So he introduced idolatry and sexual sin. Balaam knew that sin was the only real threat. Sin was the only way to defeat or even to destroy the Israelites, getting them to embrace sin, to accommodate it, to excuse it, to compromise. And there were some in the church at Pergamum who embodied this teaching. They were the Nickelodeons. I got to get that. The Nicolaitans who somehow believed that saving faith and immorality or idolatry were compatible. Somehow there were people who openly participated in idolatry and immorality, but just tried to justify it with their own spirituality. The bottom line is, their problem wasn't Satan. Their problem was sin. And further, their problem was indifference to compromise. It appears that there were only some in the church who were compromising. But that the church as a whole was indifferent to it. They wouldn't tolerate Satan, bless God. But they accommodated sin. And there is a warning for every church here. The contemporary church must take inventory of compromise. Compromise is always justified. It is always minimized. Compromise always corrupts our virtue. It always weakens our witness. It always decreases our peace. Compromise in Revelation and in every age and in every church always involves some form of idolatry or immorality. 
idolatry in the way of somehow dividing our love and loyalty to the name and cause of Christ, or easing or redefining the sacredness of human sexuality, entertaining the unclean or the unholy or the profane. This is the constant warning in the, epist- epist- the, the, the literature of the apostles, the epistolary literature. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. And he continues, but he says, Of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 16, Therefore, repent and the new american standard says therefore repent or else i am coming to you quickly and i will make war against them with the sword of my mouth therefore repent repent is the main imperative in this passage this is what jesus requires in in response to their compromise and he says repent or else Does that make us uncomfortable? Jesus comes across as if he is in charge. (laughs) Jesus comes across as if he has the right to have expectations of us. I don't know if he knows, but we're American. (laughs) Good thing he wrote that to these folk. What is repentance? Repentance is not just feeling bad and continuing wrong. Repentance means we stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. Now, this this command to repent, to whom is it written? Is it written to the pagans at Pergamum? Is that the title of the letter? To the pagans at Pergamum, right? No, this is written to the church. This is written to people who have called upon the name of the Lord, who are singing on the weekends together. They have potlucks and things. He's talking to them to repent. The book of James, also written to believers, it provides us quite an exposition on what repent looks like. Book of James, chapter 4, verse, verse 7, says this. Be subject to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Be miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Repentance can be hard, but it is always worth it. Compromise is dangerous, and it is never worth it. An indifference to known compromise makes us an accomplice to it. Therefore, the command was written to the to, the command to repent was written to the whole church. The whole church. There may be something in us that reviles, rejects the idea. Wait a minute. I'm not the why what the, why is he calling everybody to repent? That guy's got the problem. Well, there's something powerful about this. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel's easily 90 years old. And he's reading his Bible. He's reading Jeremiah 29. And he sees there that their time of captivity is supposed to end. It's actually supposed to have ended. And his circumstance is not what the Bible says it should be. And so this old, this, this old guy, this 90-year-old feller, is one of the people in the Old Testament about whom nothing, is, nothing critical is ever said. It, he is only praised for consistent character. But he reads about God's displeasure with the nation's sin and its consequences. And he does not get on his knees and say, you know, Lord, it's not really fair. And I look at me, I've done all these things. He doesn't go through any, he doesn't do any of that nonsense. What we read is the first thing Daniel does is repent. He repents on behalf of his heart and on behalf of his people. And he asks the Lord for mercy. He repents because he well, what we know. And what he probably knew, we can see in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5, both passages, Paul reminds the church that a little bit of leaven can leaven the whole loaf. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul actually t- warns of the church that if, if, if he says, look, I'm not, I'm not, he says, if, if there are people who name the name of Christ and are belligerently living a life of compromise, you cannot maintain a relationship with them. You, you, you have got to take it seriously. Now, what we need to hear then in this call to repent is this is not an invitation for accusation. This is not an invitation for suspicion or condemnation. This is a call to humility and honesty and sincere contrition. 
Because Daniel humbled his own heart in contrition before the Lord, and heaven responded. The angel Gabriel said, the moment you began to pray, a command was given, and literally the geopolitical boundaries of nations began to shift because one person humbled their heart before the Lord in repentance. And if, if one righteous man can humble his heart in repentance and bring regional change, what could happen if a church does? But if they will not repent, Jesus said, he'll come and confront the wrongdoing himself. Apparently it's not up to us to decide what is acceptable or, or how Jesus should respond. He will intervene directly. And he says, and he doesn't mean in eternity, he says, I'm coming quickly, I'll deal with it. In the same way that he told Ephesus he would remove their lampstand, he tells Pergamum, if they maintain an alliance with sin, they'll make an adversary of him. Jesus loves us more than we can measure. And he still has great expectations for his church. Verse 17, let him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Listen, what he has said to Pergamum, he intends for all of us to hear. The church in every age and every culture and every country must reject compromise with an indifference toward sin. If we listen and we will heed will be blessed. And then Jesus says, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Wow. To overcome is to obey, to stay the course of, of faithful obedience, even to repent in this case and not quit the race. And the rewards here are real. Those scholars debate their meaning. What does it mean? I'll give him a white stone. Well, it could mean an admission to a banquet. It could mean a token promising a glorious retirement after a great victory. It could be a declaration of acquittal by a jury. But here's, honestly, the text tells us no one knows. (laughs) The point here is this. What these rewards are aren't yet certain. But that they are, are certain. Jesus affirms that his reward will accompany our faithfulness. Jesus wants his church to live faithfully forward in hope of his reward. And in Pergamum, that required repentance from their compromise with and indifference towards sin. Let everyone with ears to hear. Let everyone with ears to hear. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to this church, to us, to you today. I encourage you, I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to take inventory of your own life. This is too important 
for us to keep our distance from Pergamum. Did your heart hear that? This is too important for us to keep a safe distance. Consider the scripture, Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is forgiven. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you. In my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I ask us to stand together this morning? I want to encourage you, invite you to not keep your distance from this word. but to hear this as one who is hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying. Take inventory of your own heart with honesty and humility. Lord, is there a compromise in my life? And Lord, is there indifference toward it? Search me and know me, Lord. I encourage you to embrace repentance this morning. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. Take my heart and form it. Take my mind and transform it. Take
want to find a place this morning where you are, or perhaps at the front here, just to open your heart before the Lord, to draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you, to, to kind of carve out an altar of repentance. I'm going to have the musicians sing this song again. We invite you to come. If you need to go, God bless you. May the Lord be with you. May His grace go with you. And uh, if you need to fellowship with folks, enjoy that cafe. But let's just create, especially around the front here, just building an altar to do some business with the Lord this morning. And God bless you. Let's pray. Righteousness, righteousness is what I long for. Righteousness is what I need. Righteousness, righteousness is what you want.